We're stepping back into this series that we've been working through, looking at 1 Peter. We've called it Compelled, uh, and it's probably worthwhile just to give us a little bit of a refresh why it's called Compelled. We're reminding ourselves that we're, we're looking at a letter that is written, says so in the first chapter, uh, to a, a whole group of Christians that have been spread into uh, what is now modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, different locations, different places where persecution has erupted in Jerusalem uh, following the uh, significant events of the life of Jesus. They've scattered, and Peter is writing to them because they have become believers in Jesus and they are compelled uh, to follow Jesus. Now, that group of people have also been mixed up with a significant group of people who have previously uh, been scattered uh, around the Roman Empire. So Jews from Palestine have been scattered previously. Then there has been more of a scattering uh, as uh, persecution is unleashed in uh, Jerusalem following on from the events of Jesus. And we're right, we see this uh, letter is written to a group of people, and we see that in chapter 4 and verse 12, we see a significant statement uh, which gives us an insight into what is going on. We read in verse 12, it says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. There's a situation. Peter has previously spoken about the potential of opposition and hostility being unleashed, and now he says, and that some of that host hostility has been unleashed. So we get a little window into the kind of events that were going on in the first century. We have this faith in this, uh, what was initially considered just a sect of Judaism, and therefore, within the Roman Empire, it was kind of accepted. The Jewish faith was generally accepted that there would be this group of people within the empire, these believers in Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and it was acceptable for them to pursue their own faith. Uh, and initially, the Christian faith was accepted as something which was part of that. Uh, and then we see spreading out from Jerusalem this statement from the Jews to say, this is not part of us. This is something separate from us. And then suddenly, these believers in Jesus find themselves in that illegitimate state. They've previously come under the banner of the Jewish protection, and now they find themselves in an illegitimate state. They don't follow the gods of the empire, nor do they follow according to the statements of the hierarchy of the Jewish community, nor do they follow the statements of, of or follow the faith of Jew, the Jews. And therefore they sit, and they are shocked, they are surprised. And Peter says, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised that there is a, this opposition which is being unleashed on you. I guess for us today in 21st century Yorkshire, we ask the question, well, so what? <laughs> How does this particular text relate to us? Well, firstly, I would say that whenever we turn on our... TVs, whenever we flick onto a news website or 
some of us might even open a newspaper. Uh, Whenever we do that, we, we are confronted again and again and again that around the world there is significant opposition to believers in Jesus. And we mentioned a few weeks ago that Angela Merkel a couple of years ago said that the Christian faith is, uh, from her research, the most uh, oppressed and persecuted religion in the world. That, that's, that's a statement which is not made by a Christian group. It's made by a, the German government, their assessment of what's going on in the world. There is significant opposition which is going on in the world. There is some sense in which, even in our distant state, we can be really shaken by that, can't we? What, what is going on? What is going on in this world? When, when people just like us, who are believers in Jesus, and, and it seems as though the context of their country, a country which previously had been quite accepting accepting of Christianity. It was one of those faiths which just trundled along with all of the others. That was the statement of the country. There has been a massive shift. And there is a sense in which the words of Peter kind of roll out across the centuries, across the generations, where he says, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at this fiery ordeal that is confronting you. Uh, There is a sense in which Revelation speaks about this. It says that what we now see, because media just gives us the news so quickly, is precisely what has been happening for the past millennia. As the Christian faith in different locations, different places, is being opposed. It is being opposed. And so we can sit in this context and we can say, Okay, this is happening. It is terrifying. It is horrific. It is awful. We will pray for our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world who are facing astounding persecution. We will, we will do all that we can within the legitimate powers of democracy to see resolution to those situations. All of those things will go on. But deep down, There is a statement which God's Word says to us today, which says, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised that this is being unleashed on followers of Jesus. One of the messages that Peter's letter just kind of resonates again and again is this connection to say, do you know if Jesus was persecuted and oppressed, And if he was offensive, then don't be surprised if we are. Don't be surprised if the same opposition which Jesus faced just rolls out again and again and again. Now, I would say that the history of the Christian church, there are times when the behavior of what purports to be the Christian church has brought... uh, but brought a response on itself which is completely understandable. There has been an arrogance, there has been a political maneuvering, there has been struggles of power which have been uh, persecution of others in the name of Jesus. And let's, so let's separate out 
all of that's gone on, and that is equally as horrific. But what we're talking about here is just the ordinary people and ordinary lives that are just turned upside down. I'm sure that many of us have been um, destabilized in our emotions, in our feelings, when we look at what's going on in the world today. The letter of Peter speaks today, God's Word speaks today and says simply, do not be surprised. Don't be surprised that this is happening. I think one of the challenges that we have today, in a sense, and one of the reasons I want to suggest that, that actually we have more of an emotional anxiety and more of an emotional response is the sheer speed and scale at which information is actually hitting us. It, it's hard for us to cope, isn't it? When we hear information which in, in hit years and centuries gone by would have taken days, weeks, and months to filter through. And now we're in a situation where it just hits us again and again and again and again. We're not made, we're not created to be able to manage that kind of onslaught of information. So don't be surprised when it affects us the way we do. But be encouraged, there is a foundation here which God is saying to you and me today, don't be surprised that that's the situation. Why should we not be surprised about this issue of suffering? Well, Peter says, and I want to look at this in three ways. Firstly, understand that short suffering is shared. Understand that we shouldn't confuse it. And then understand that we shouldn't misinterpret it. There's the three steps that we're going to take. The big step, the big stepping stone, the one that we're going to spend most time on this afternoon is the first one, just so that I'll give you the heads up there, so that when we get to the end of point one and you're thinking, what, how, how long is this going to go on? Uh, the next two are really quick. So the first one we're going to spend the most time on. First, understand that suffering in one sense is shared. It's what Peter says. He says in verse 13 and 14, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. There are, that, that, those two verses are just packed with statements which are so, so uncomfortable for us today. Rejoice when suffering comes. Rejoice as in as much as you participate in the suffering of Christ. So here we are, this situation, this experience, this event, which is clearly is hostile to us. When that hits us, we're to rejoice. That doesn't sit well with us today, does it? We sit in a world which expects, which demands happiness, peace of life, and comfort. It's what we expect, and, if it, and there is a sense in which that is absolutely right. There is a sense in which that's what we're made for. We're made for a world which is resolved, which is at peace. We're made to be emotionally resolved. 
uh, satisfied. We're made to not be fearful. That's how we're made. God has made us like that. There's a sense in which our discomfort is a little indicator to say it shouldn't be like this. There is another way. And the other way is rooted in Jesus' suffering, Peter says. And he says there is a sense in which when suffering for the name of Jesus comes on us, there is a connection which is made with our experience and the suffering of Jesus. There is a sense in which it brings us together with Him. We are sharing with Him in that suffering. How does that work out? How can we begin to start to to journey down that? I think the fact that we, we feel discomfort, we feel fear, we feel sadness, we feel pain, is an indication that when this suffering comes on us, when it hits us, it tells us that it shouldn't be like this. And that is exactly the world that Jesus came into. Remember that we are reminded that He left a place which was filled with His own sense of peace, with His own sense of glory, with His own sense of satisfaction. He left a place of resolution and He left that and He immersed Himself in our world. He immersed Himself in a world which was filled with precisely those experiences of pain, those experiences of difficulty, those experiences of hardship. He made this world His experience. So He shares in what we experience of suffering. Precisely what we read elsewhere. He shares in our suffering. Isn't that great news? Isn't it great news that the God who we worship is not some distant God who doesn't understand the experience, doesn't understand the pain, doesn't understand the fear, but rather he he left what was perfect and he entered into this. But what we see is that we are participating in the sufferings of Jesus. I'm I'm thinking, well, how how can this relate to us today? Because we here are not suffering the kind of hostile, obvious opposition, the kind of um, physical pain, the kind of economic pain, the kind of suffering that other individuals in the world is the only conne- are experiencing, is the only connection, therefore, that we can look on and see their situation? Or is there something more? Is there something that we can enter into now, today, in the sufferings of Jesus. Where did Jesus suffer? Where did he, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Where did Jesus suffer? Our first and obvious location is the Easter event. The events of the cross, the events beforehand. All of those things that went on. But that 
That really is one end of Jesus' ministry. At the other end of Jesus' ministry, at the very other, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, there is another experience of suffering. We read in um, Luke chapter uh, 4 an event where Jesus suffered. It's not the suffering of the cross, it's the suffering of the temptation of Jesus. Was that, was that something which Jesus just breathed, breezed through? Let's remind ourselves of what happened. Jesus identify, is identified by John as being the one who has come. And he's baptized in the Jordan, River Jordan. John baptizes him. Jesus comes out of the water And there's a moment there where we see a picture of the anointing of Jesus' ministry through the voice of the Father and the presence of the dove of the Holy Spirit. We see this moment where Jesus is identified as the beginning of his ministry. What marks that ministry is the next 40 days. Because the next 40 days, Jesus enters into the experience of temptation. And the temptation that he experiences, I would suggest, gives us today far more of an opportunity to look at the whole of the life of Jesus, not restrict our thinking of his suffering as only being his final death, but look at the whole of his life and see how he experienced what we experience. Was Jesus Jesus facing hostility from the very beginning of his ministry? Absolutely, yes. And the hostility was that behind-the-scenes hostility of Satan. Right from the very beginning, there was opposition to Jesus. Look at what we see. Verse... Uh, verse 3, one to, 1 to 3. Well, I'll read from verse 3. Jesus has been in the wilderness with no food, and then Satan comes to him and says to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone the first moment where we see the first or the first challenge Jesus is separated away and it's almost what is that what are those 40 days in in foodless separation i would i would suggest that it's that moment where Jesus really engages in the reality of a broken world He makes that statement to say, my ministry is about coming into this broken world. A world of pain, a world of hunger, a world that shouldn't be. A world that you and I say, this isn't how it should be. And then Jesus says, I know, and I am in it. And then right at that moment of greatest anguish, Satan comes to him and says... Son of God, isn't that interesting? 
Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus' Jesus' response is this. Man shall not live on bread alone. The suffering of Jesus is a moment where Jesus, the first temptation is that Jesus should rely for that moment not on his Father, but rather rely on the temporary experience of this world. I'm desperately hungry. I'm immersed in the pain of this world, and in the pain of this world, I am relying on my Father. That's what was going on during those 40 days. Jesus is immersed in the pain and relying on his Father, and at that moment, Satan comes along and says, don't rely on your Father, rely on satisfying yourself. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. How how many ways... How many experiences, how many situations do we live where we are tempted to rely on this world rather than relying on our Father in heaven? How many ways do we therefore not enter into the suffering of Jesus? Not enter into, not share in that suffering, not participate in that suffering, but rather say, no, I'm going to satisfy myself with this world now rather than satisfying myself in trusting in my Father. And Jesus enters into that, and he says, no, tr- I am trusting in my Father because man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give to you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will, be all, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil takes Jesus up to a high place. We don't, I don't even begin to understand how that works. Not, I'm not worried about that at this moment in time. It doesn't matter. I think what we see is in the moment where Jesus, uh, the experience of Jesus opens a window into what this world is actually about. We live in a world, don't we, where to be known, to be seen, to be recognized, to be valued by this world, (laughs) by people in this world, is everything. And we see another little window, don't we, where there is a sense in which the authority over that is in Satan's hands. The authority to be worshipped, to be recognized, to be adored, (laughs) is not in our hands. There is a sinister behind-the-scenes battle which is going on so that we should not be surprised when people who really we are surprised that the world adores, the world adores them. We should not be surprised at that. 
but it comes at a cost. It comes without even realizing it for many. It comes at the cost of not adoring God, but adoring Satan. Now, I am not suggesting that people in conspicuous power are devil worshippers behind the scenes. That's not the case. But what they are is they're worshipping the power of this world. They're worshipping the adulation of this world. They're worshipping the experience of this world. And they are sacrificing the opportunity to worship God, to worship that instead. And it is going to cost. And how often, how often do we fall into the same trap of feeling as though the adulation of this world, the worship of this world, and the idea of being worshipped in this world, is what everything relies on. It's a devastating experience. Younger guys, I want to encourage you to think about this. Think living in a world which is just shaped completely, just dominated completely by being adored by this world, Uh, has a trickle-down, rub-off effect. It makes all of us, in some little way, want to be recognized and adored and seem to be like those who are also adored. That's the world that we live in. It's a world which has sacrificed the worship of God for the worship of people, for the worship of status, for the worship of power. And this verse says, stop, whose hand is that in? Jesus doesn't say, that isn't yours to give. He doesn't contradict Satan by saying, you haven't got that kind of power. He acknowledges, yes, you do have exactly that kind of power, but the problem with that is it's a temporary worship. It's a worship which one day will be judged because the true worship is the worship of God. And therefore, be really careful what you are identifying as your focus of worship, what you are loving, what you are adoring, what you are... And, and you know, let's, let's not become like modern-day hermits and pretend that we can hide ourselves away in our ascetic cave and, and pretend that we can be separated from this world. What we are saying is, guys, be wise. Because to be compelled in worshipping Jesus at some point is going to cost because it means I am worshipping Jesus instead of worshipping this world. And as soon as I stop worshipping this world and worshipping Jesus instead, I will look and seem offensive to people in this world. And Jesus says, when that happens, be encouraged. (laughs) Be encouraged. Don't fear that. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. I was watching a really interesting video. Um, uh, There's a series of videos, the I Am Second series of videos. Really interesting. 
Um, famous people, um, famous musicians, famous sports people who are believers in Jesus who are saying, essentially, in my life, I am second, Jesus is first. Really interesting little set of videos. One of them is a UFC fighter uh, who... Um, he, he basically said, at a, at a title belt fight, he said beforehand, God, give me this title, give me this win, and I'll follow you for the rest of my days. And he won. And he didn't follow God for the rest of his days. And it took him a, a whole series of difficult steps and painful steps and awkward and awful situations for him to finally realize I was testing God back there. I was placing effectively, wasn't I? I, I was emotionally saying, right, if, if you prove yourself to be who you are, then I will deign to worship you. In other words, if you conform to my standard my identification of what it means for you to be God, then I'll worship you. And Jesus says, don't put your God to the test. Don't do that. How often do we do that? How do we often do we say, and how relevant the danger of that is when we come to this particular text in Peter, where we see that we are, we are faced with potential real hostility. We say, well, God, if, you, if you'll just do this, then you can prove yourself to be worth following. But the outcome might be pain. The outcome might be difficulty. The outcome might be hardship. And that is not a measure. The difficulty and the hardship is not a measure of whether God is God and whether God loves you. It's one of the things that this whole little section in Peter wants to encourage us to see. When the bad times come, it's not because God is against you. Very often, actually, when the bad times come, it's because God is for you. Look at what we go on to say. It says, don't confuse it, firstly, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 15 and 16. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a peddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. There's a little warning. <laughs> a little warning to say, don't, don't suggest that any kind of opposition, globally speaking, just because I'm a believer in Jesus, is because of that. You, you know, don't don't misbehave and then say it's because I'm a believer in Jesus. Don't, don't, from a murderer to a meddler. There's times when we, when we cause a hostility to come on us because absolutely we deserve hostility to, be, to come on us because we misbehave in certain ways and we get the justifiable wrath of society on us. Remember where this came. Remember where this was being located. This was a group of believers who were finding their way to, to raise their hands above the, uh, above the parapet and say, we believe that we should be free to worship Jesus. And it's going to cost us our lives, 
but that's what we believe to be fair and true and right in any world that we live in. That's where the Christian faith was rooted, where it cost, uh, and therefore make sure, Peter says, that your suffering is only ever because you are a believer in Jesus, not because you misbehave yourself. So don't confuse it. I told you that these next two stepping stones were quick. Uh, and the final one, don't misinterpret it. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? That's a little challenging little text that for it's time, if it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. Whenever we read that, we read that in the negative, don't we? Be judgment beginning on God's household. There's been a whole load of, it's coming to the end, thankfully. Britain's got talent. There's the judging panel. We're, we're on the last leg, thankfully. And uh, Britain's got talent. There's the judging panel. What are they doing? They are judging. Now, there are occasions in which that judging is positive. It's not always negative judgment, is it? Sometimes judgment is a positive decision. That's what this is talking about when it speaks about judgment coming on the house of God. The judgment is this, this, this series of events which is proving these people to be true believers in Jesus it's judgment which is coming. It's testing which is coming. It's trials which are coming. What proved Jesus to be worthy of his next three years of ministry? The fact that he faced the direct temptation of Satan in a cataclysmic way, way beyond anything that we would ever experience, and he triumphed over it. He was judged and proved to be worthy in exactly the same way as when judgment begins at the house of God, at the people of God, it was judgment which is being proved to be worthy. Therefore, when this suffering comes, when this hostility comes, when this challenge comes, and we come out unbelievably at the other side, it is proved with our faith somehow intact, against all human possibility, against all human expectation, expectation, it is judgment coming at the house of God and being proved to be worthy. What about when that judgment, in human terms, faces the very worst outcome? Well, that's what happened at the end of Jesus' life, isn't it? And he was proved to be worthy because he rose again. So even if the very worst comes, even if the very worst oppression, the very worst comes, the most horrific for the sake of being a believer in Jesus, it can never defeat the good outcome. Look at how it concludes in verse 19. So then, 
those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I guess that just kind of rounds it off. It says, look, (laughs) just keep on trusting him. Just keep on trusting him. He is who he is. The suffering is not a measure of his opposition. It's not a measure that you're going to be defeated. It's not a measure that you've failed. It's not a measure that, that somehow the Christian faith is going to implode and your faith is not going to survive. Trust in him. He will carry us through. 